Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. This time I'll be conducting a conversation with a conductor whose career started at such a young age that he was called by one of his mentors, My Little Genius. A truly international career on the podium has been varied and fascinating, much like the conversation we had. It is a real pleasure to introduce Daniel Harding. Daniel Harding, what a wonderful pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me, Mike. Not a problem at all. Um, I wonder whether we could go right back. Do you remember your very first earliest musical experiences? Um, I grew up in a in a family where where music was was part of part of life. So my my father was a um, an amateur viola player, and my mother. Um, how should I put this? I'm an extremely amateur flute player. <laughs> um, and my grandmother, my, my mother's mother, uh, lived with us for many years. And she had been, she sang in the Bach choir and she had been friends with, I think she was very good friends with Imogen Holst. And she knew Vaughan Williams a bit. And, and she'd been involved with that movement, the, the kind of English folk song movement. So I was surrounded by people who, in a very amateur way, were extremely um, involved with music making. My father played in the local orchestra and the local, um, uh, they had local amateur operatic society. Uh, so as kids, we were used to going regularly, if not incredibly often, but to hear live performance. Mm. I remember my father with colleagues from the university uh, playing string quartets uh, at home. Um, so I guess, yeah, absolutely. My, my first musical memories are of, of uh, hearing, my, hearing my father playing in, in amateur productions or in, um, you know, with colleagues in the house. When you went to see your parents play in their amateur orchestra, was there an, in, um, an instrument that grabbed you or did you just enjoy it? Or were you, even at this stage, were you just unaware that music was going to be something for you? Well, this, you know, every family has its stories. Um, and the story in our family is that there was a, I guess, a Christmas performance of Messiah um, and that I slept on my mother's shoulder, woke up for the trumpet shell sound and then rather noisily told her, I'm going to play that. Um, and indeed, trumpet was the, it was my instrument. It's not the first instrument I learned to play. Um, I had to wait and I guess I started the trumpet when I was eight, when I kind of had my adult teeth. Um, but, uh, but it was the instrument that made me want to be a musician. And apparently it was hearing the trumpet shell sound in that performance um, somewhere in Oxford that, that gave me that, that inspiration or that kick. So, yes. So on to Cheatham's. Um, and did you enjoy that specialist music school feeling vibe that you get at places like Cheatham's? I did. I mean, you know, I was never under any pressure from my parents to stay there. It was my idea to to audition for a specialist in music school in the first place. And that's because I played from quite... So back in the day, <laughs> we were so well served for, you know, with music education. And I played in, in two youth orchestras in Oxford. We had the Oxfordshire County Youth Orchestra and the Thames Vale Youth Orchestra. Um, and... Principal Oboe of the Thames Vale Youth Orchestra back those days was a man called Jonathan Kelly, who I mm, <laughs> imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so we were 
uh, there were these two brilliant youth orchestras. Um, and even before that stage, we had the Saturday morning music school where, we, where I played in a wind band, I played in orchestra. And those were, the, those were the really formative musical experiences for me. It was being with other kids and playing, playing, you know, sometimes arrangements, you know, easy arrangements, but of great music and feeling that, that thing you get from that, which you can't get anywhere else. And you're becoming kind of addicted to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so then I went and played in the National Children's Orchestra, which was an extraordinary experience to spend your holidays going away being with with, uh, you know, a hundred other children who all share the passion and seeing that music can also be this incredibly social activity. Um, and, you know, I, in the best sense, the incredible feeling of pride you have and you get that you, you're 10 or 11 years old and you go somewhere and you play a concert and it all feels so grown up and you're playing this music that has so much power in it that kind of you 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 feel part of that's you know these are life-changing experiences and i realized that i made lots of friends in the national children's orchestra who were at specialist music schools and i think that my thought was going to cheatham's or going to wells or whatever it is must be like being in the national children's orchestra all year round. yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. And, and so I'm the one who said to my parents, I want to audition, I want to try that. Um, and if it hadn't been somewhere I was happy, then I wouldn't have stayed. I mean, I look back and it wasn't always easy, but I don't think teenage years are. No, it doesn't matter where you are, does it? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. And school, is, school can be, school is tough. It has good moments and bad moments. Um, being away from home is, you know, boarding school is is something to to deal with um but i never had any kind of teenage rebellion <laughs> I, I always had an incredibly good relationship with my parents and i think that may be connected to the fact that i i was away from home um and you don't have that kind of pressure that tension which can sometimes be between parents and, and, and adolescents um my son uh had a, a very similar path in that he um played or both my children played in national children's orchestra um and my son then had the same feeling and now he he's at school um at wells and i think exactly the same reason he he thought wow i can have this experience uh, all year round and, and it's time. something that he absolutely loves yeah obviously youth orchestras and cheatham's played a big part in your life during this time are you now starting to dip your toe into conducting your friends and colleagues um, so we had a wonderful um, guy at Chets at the time called Colin Touchin, who uh, left shortly after I arrived. I think he went, went was director of music at Warwick University. Um, but he was one of those teachers who was kind of loved and admired by everybody. And he gave conducting classes. And that was the, you know, I, I think that as a, even younger, kind of when I was 10, 11, I used to put a record on at home and stand there and pretend to conduct it and 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 I, I enjoyed the thing of reading scores I mean the scores thing is interesting because um when I played in the the local youth orchestras um as a 11 year old or 12 year old trumpet player or whatever and you know you have eight trumpet players sitting in a row um, with two trumpet parts <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so the rule is yeah. when when it's really loud you can all play um and for the rest of the time uh, you little kids, you, you sit there and wait, and the, and the, the older guys play. 
Um, and anyway, a lot of the music we play, the trumpets don't, don't play very much anyway. So most of my life in youth orchestra was spent counting, counting bars rests and, and, and waiting. And it, it was, um, rightly so, forbidden you know, to sit there and read a book or whatever. Um, and uh, necessity being what it is, I, I realized if I go to the library um, and borrow the scores of the pieces we're playing, I can just sit with the score, I can read the score, I, I'll never feel disconnected or, or feel as if I'm just waiting. I'll be you know, kind of involved and interested uh, in what's going on around me. And when the time comes to play, I'll put my score down and I'll play my instrument. Mm. And so it, it, I can't pretend that I did that at the beginning um, out of any kind of noble goal. It was just to, to be a bit less bored. <laughs> um, but it meant that as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, I got very comfortable reading scores and I started to get interested in what's a conductor doing? What, you know, what kind of things is talking about? Why does he stop? What, what are the decisions he's making that make this performance sound different? Um, not, not like the one I listened to at home on the, the record player, whatever, those kind of things. Um, and so I would stand, then I'd go home and pretend to conduct myself and stand in front of the mirror, whatever, and just, you know, um, fantasize about that. And when I was at Chet's, as I said, there, was these, there were these conducting classes and I decided to, to ro enroll in that. And I did, comp I mean, I, I did a bit of everything I, in a very kind of dilettante way. I wanted to try everything out in the music. And the conducting, I think I was an incredibly lazy child. There's no doubt about that. Um, and suddenly I discovered something where I had no limit to my desire to, <laughs> to work and to study. And whether it was studying scores or analyzing pieces and preparing things, I, I, I could just do that for hours and hours and it never felt like work. So I did. Well, um, what's interesting about scores is that I also fell in love with scores around the same time of my life as you did. But because I was playing a violin, I couldn't do what you were doing because I was playing pretty much all the time. <laughs> you, were, um, you were busy. <laughs> yeah, I was busy. Um, so what I would do was go to my my local library and get the scores out, and then have a look at them when I, you know, in my own free time at home, and think, well, I wonder what's going on, and why that, why is that happening? And I just got to love looking at scores. Um, yeah, yeah, and they're, they're you know they're, they're wonderful things. They're often beautiful things. They're often they're very revealing things. But yeah, that was my way of doing it because I <laughs> I was playing all the, all the time, so I didn't have the luxury. you're you're now sort of getting into conducting you've had lessons with colin there's this the uh, very famous story now of a tape being sent to simon rattle yeah how did that come about you know the piero lunaire and the tape being sent well i went to church when i was 13 and i think that the story with simon and the piero lunaire must have been kind of three years later three or four years later um and by that point i was obsessed with the idea of being a conductor the perspective of the school was that they didn't have the resources to teach people to be conductors. They say, you know, you want to learn to be a conductor, you need to have an orchestra to conduct, and uh, you know, we we can't provide that. You should become a conductor having spent twenty years playing in a professional symphony orchestra. And you know, that's another debate. All of those things. The the yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that, having spent 22 years playing. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, say, yeah. there are things to agree with and there are things to disagree with, absolutely. And, and that's fine. But that was just, that's just how it was. And they're, and they're absolutely right that 
training conductors is very uh, resource intensive. But I realized at some point I was surrounded by the resource I needed, which is musicians. Mm. Um, and again, for, for better or for worse, the way it worked at school was that orchestra was something that happened once a term. So the end of, at the end of term, there would be a week or, or you know, some preparation period before, and then there'd be a week of intensive orchestra stuff and, and concert. But the thing is, when you're 14 or 16 or whatever, and you play an orchestral instrument, what you want to do is play big pieces in an orchestra. And I mean, most of us, of course, there were, there were people who, who, whose absolute goal was to be um, a soloist, but most kids playing instruments, they want to play with other people. And I, I realized that if I borrowed music from the library and if I filled in the form to book the hall on a Sunday afternoon, all I had to do was persuade friends to come along and form an orchestra for a couple of hours. And then I could get my chance to conduct and they could get their chance to play some of the pieces that, that you know, they didn't want to have to wait till the end of term to be allowed to do. Mm. Um, so I started conducting that way. And one of the projects that we did, we realized that a small group of friends that we had exactly the, the instruments that we needed to, to do Schoenberg's Pierre now. Um, and that seemed, <laughs> for good reason, seemed to be a kind of beautifully uh, ambitious project. And uh, so we, we got hold of the music and we, we had a lot of rehearsals, you know, in our free time. I think we probably did some of it um, during scheduled practice time or whatever. And we, we did it as a school chain music project. And we worked on it for, I mean, I can't remember, but what seemed like a year. Mm. Um, and then I had this idea. I said, oh, you know, um, I went to see my composition teachers a man called Michael Ball and I said I'm going to write a letter to Simon Rattle and ask him if he'll give us a lesson on Pierre Lunet you know in the kind of naive way you do and uh, he said to me why don't you let me do that for you oh that's okay um, and he wrote a letter to Simon which I think basically said look I've got a group of whatever we were six or seven kids here they're kind of 15 16 years old they're incredibly passionate and devoted they've been working very very hard on Pierre Lunet for a long time now, the school for, and again, I'm not judging here, but the school for whatever reason doesn't feel in a position to encourage this kind of activity. Would you at least take 10 minutes just to encourage them and tell them that it's great that they're excited about doing this? And Simon tells it that, you know, he got this letter and he thought, well, either these kids are crazy or they're interesting. So we, mm. we should give them some kind of encouragement. And he invited us. Um, he said, uh, his wife at the time, um, Elise Ross, they used to perform Pierre Lunet together a lot. They were preparing some performances in Birmingham with the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group. He said, why don't Daniel, um, with the pianist, um, Tim, Tim Horton, and Eleanor Menel, who was uh, singing, why don't the three of them come down and we can, we'll give them an afternoon and we'll just look through the piece together. And, you know, I think his idea was, I'll just give them some encouragement and... Um, yeah. And, and meet these crazy teenagers who want to play Schoenberg. So we used the resources of the school because you know, these are the advantages of a place like Chet's. Not only all the fascinating people and students, but we were able to book a, a kind of studio. And over a few nights, we put a tape together of us doing Pierre Lunet because we said, okay, if three of us are going down, but we would love to be able to show him what we've been doing with everybody. Well, yeah. So, so we put this tape together. <laughs> And we went down to Birmingham. And I think 
you know, I kind of took it out. My, he said, you know, so he took us in to the house and gave us a cup of tea and was very welcoming. And and I said, look, we've got this tape. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> and he was a little, I don't think he had no idea what to expect from no. it. Um, he's like, okay, so we'll put the tape on. And we listened to the entire thing together. And then he said kind of the most Simon thing you could possibly imagine. He said, um, he said, you know, we just did this, um, we did this piece a few weeks ago with uh, players from the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, and, you know, your performance is, it's really, it's, it's, it's more, it's more accurate than, than ours. <laughs> and we, you know, we just, you know, kind of dying here. And then he said, and then you kind of wait. And then he said, you don't understand anything, do you? <laughs> and I mean, in those, in the, you know, those kind of fifteen seconds, you have everything about how Simon, how Simon presents reality. Um, yeah. And he said, "So look, I don't need to talk to you about how to play this piece because you've kind of figured all that out. But let's let's see if we can talk about what what this music's about because that seems to be what's what's escaping it." And I mean, in so many ways, if you have to talk about things that way, most important moment of my life, you know, yes, that conversation. Course, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and it went, it all went from there with him. Because I mean, he, then he said to me, look, come down again in a few weeks when I'm doing the rehearsals with the BCMG and just come and hang out and watch us rehearse. And at that point, he gave me a chance. He said, look, conduct for a few minutes. I'm going to go and listen to the, to the balance in the room. And that seemed to go okay and the musicians weren't outraged uh, to be conducted by me for a few minutes i mean you know you and i both know very well that someone standing there and beating time uh, during somebody else's rehearsal is is a a shadow of what conducting is but it gave him a chance to see whether physically it worked or not and it and it grew from that and and there was then he he took me on board for a project with the cbso which was the recording of the Henser Seventh Symphony, and he asked me to learn, to learn that and assist him on it. And he gave me a chance to conduct the orchestra in a run through of the uh, first movement of that, because I mean, then I think it really was useful for him to go out in the room and listen to it. But also, then he could see how that worked, and 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 that's what 1992, something like that. So uh, <laughs> 28 years later. Um, the relationship with him and all the things that I started to learn from that, uh, you know, it's all, there's a, there's a, a long line there that, that began because of that letter uh, from my composition teacher. I remember very, very well the day that you conducted Hensa 7 because it was the day I did my final audition for the CBSO to get my job in the lunch break, which was possibly the most frightening experience of my life. But by the end of that day, it turned into a happy experience because I'd been offered a job. I remember playing for you. You then conducted the whole of the Bartok Miraculous Mandarin Suite and then did a late jump-in for Das Lied in Paris. Um, so it was a bit of a whirlwind that, that time with the CBSO. Yeah. I mean, even hearing you say that, and when I kind of think back to some of those things, it all seems utterly absurd. And I'm not sure. Well, I think that's the thing, that when you're... You're 16, 17 years old. I mean, the desk lead was a little bit later. I think I was, <laughs> was 19. Um, but thank goodness you've got no possibility to understand how crazy it is. Because I think if I'd had any perspective on it, I would have been paralyzed with, with fear. And as it was, all of those things were just the most unbelievable experiences and joy and kind of uh, and, and 
challenge in all the positive sense and and there was no i just didn't have the i didn't have the capacity to understand how far away from my own competence it was to be doing those things and that probably helps you to to get to get through better than you should mm. i mean i remember playing in both of those both the bartok and uh, the das lead and i remember thinking then and i look back on it now because of my own experiences with that orchestra I remember thinking then how the orchestra were really rooting for you to do well, both the first time when you did the, mm. the bar talk, but also the stand-in in Paris with the Das Lied. And I think that with that orchestra, there's definitely a feeling of rooting for somebody when they're either you're very young or or there's a, a stand-in like that when everybody's in it together. Um, yeah. So I think that I that, think, that would have helped, surely. I, I would hope so. Anyway. But I mean, I, th yeah. I think you touch on something absolutely fundamental about conducting, which is, <laughs> I'm sorry to say something so obvious, but um, you can't conduct on your own. I mean, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't exist. And nobody's a good conductor on their own and nobody's a kind of a bad conductor. I mean, it's a, and I've had literally that experience. Um, a few years ago, it just ended up for various reasons. I had a schedule where I was rehearsing in, um, one city in one uh, country <laughs> um, in the in the morning um, and I had rehearsals in the evening with another orchestra in the same country in a different city and I had three or four days where, because I was rehearsing an opera production and jumping in for uh, a, a colleague who was uh, unwell so working with another orchestra at the same time and two mm. two very important orchestras two great orchestras and I promise you in the morning I was an appalling conductor <laughs> who couldn't get a single chord together or show a single tempo. And in the evening, I was a conductor who simply had to imagine the color and the musicians could read it in my hands and it all happened. <laughs> um, and there you go. We don't exist without the thing that, that happens or doesn't happen um, with the musicians uh, in the moment. Um, and what you say about when an orchestra's rooting for someone, the orchestra's goodwill can't give you a good technique, nor can it give you good ears. But we can't do anything without the goodwill and the and the you know the the support of an orchestra and it is incredible how um if for whatever reason an orchestra says we want to give this conductor everything we've got um uh, even a 19 year old can get through their sleep from there So after a couple of years with Simon Rattle and the CBSO assisting Simon, you were then offered the chance to become assistant to Claudio Bardo and the Berlin Philharmonic. What were the differences between those two great conductors in how they used you, how they taught you, how they overlooked your progress? I think um, the two positions in many ways couldn't have been more different in terms of what was expected. My time as an assistant in the CBSO, if I look back, I think that was basically Simon doing everything he could to help me. It was all about him giving me an incredible educational experience. Um, my time as assistant in Berlin was, was much more straightforward in terms of I was there to do whatever made uh, Claudio's life easier. I was basically an extra librarian um, with a pair of ears in rehearsal if he had a question. What Simon did for me with the cooperation of the musicians of the CBSO is completely extraordinary. And it's not something one, you know, I mean, it's a kind of once in a lifetime uh, act of generosity. 
my job in Berlin, it was much more up to me to say, okay, I'm here to do a, at times pretty boring um, kind of office job, uh, copying things into parts, uh, whatever. Um, but the opportunity is there to learn an enormous amount. And it's just up to me to create my way of doing that. So they were very, very different. Yeah. Um, in the end, uh, Claudio Vado is one of the most generous people I've ever met. He could also, he could also not be, <laughs> but he had the capacity. He had the capacity for unbelievable generosity, especially towards young musicians. And if you think, you you go around any orchestra today, you will find a large group of musicians who got their initial kind of orchestral experience and training in one of the orchestras he set up. Um, so there's an entire generation of musicians who are everywhere, um, who who are kind of part of that. Um, philosophy he wanted to to um to spread about how an orchestra works and what an orchestra is so through the the european community then the european union youth orchestra the gustav Mahler youth orchestra and chamber orchestras he set up um he spent so much time and so much energy um providing or creating these uh these orchestras where where, where thousands and thousands of young musicians got indoctrinated into what for me is the the ideal philosophy about how orchestras work and what he did for me in terms of just sticking up for me or just using his position to say um i i think you should give this opportunity to daniel or you know daniel's daniel's a serious guy but just the, those very simple things when a conductor of that stature um stands behind you and and supports what you're doing it, because you know as a 19 year old as i was when i went to be his assistant it again it's just it's just an extraordinary chance and um he's not someone he wasn't someone who would talk about music um or talk about what he was doing or he wasn't comfortable um dissecting anything and you know as well as i do simon is is has got an almost kind of leonard bernstein like ability um, mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. to talk about things and to and to explain things and and then he, he's got no fear of um uh you know, he'll talk about what he finds difficult. He'll talk about what he finds easy. He'll tell you what he thinks you've done, which is absolutely appalling. And he'll tell you why. He'll tell you what he thinks <laughs> is good. Um, he can explain. Um, he, he, he's able to see in himself what he does that has a certain effect on an orchestra. Um, and he can see that in other people. He can analyze it. I mean, his, his, um, his ability to step back from a situation and see everything about it is extraordinary. Um, and and I think that Claudio, whether he couldn't do that, whether he didn't want to do that, whether he was afraid of doing that, I don't know. But it just wasn't his way. So if you wanted to learn something from him, you had to do the learning yourself. You had to watch and observe and try and understand because um, despite all of his generosity and his kindness, it just wasn't open in that way. And on that point, um, I read on the internet, because I do my homework, you know, <laughs> um, it was a, a, an article somewhere uh, buried away in the World Wide Web that said that other than you've just said Colin Touching, you did some early classes with him at Chet's, it says that you've never had any conducting lessons. Yeah. So in, in that regard, did um, neither Simon or Claudia ever really talk to you about technique? I mean, yeah. I, and they're both very different. Technically, they're both very different. Um, Claudia, never. I, uh, um, yeah. Uh, it just wasn't 
it just wasn't the way it worked with him. There wasn't the way he thought about things. Although, although of course, he was um, he was a Swarovski student in Vienna, mm. and although his way of conducting is unlike anybody else's and appears to be incredibly personal and free, you can absolutely see that he had a very very strict, um, you know, Viennese <laughs> education about mm. how to conduct. You can see all of the basis of it, and then he made it his own. But it wasn't something that he discussed or analyzed. Simon, there were times where literally he would sit down at the piano and say, conduct that for me. And he would talk to me about things he saw. So, you know, that's not clear. That's not. Um, and, and he would be more analytical and more direct. But, but I mean, probably the, the amount of time over the years that we spent doing that, you know, probably cumulatively an hour and a half or something, you know, mm-hmm. over years and years. Um, so Simon... I could phone him up and I still do anytime and say, I've got a problem with this, I've got a problem with this. And it can be a, a technical problem or it can be a, a dealing with people problem or a musical problem. And he'll always take time and try to figure it out with me. Um, but actual strict kind of conducting lessons, not so much. I and mean, I do remember with the lead from the era, um, because it all happened very quickly because uh, there was an illness in his family. And then he rang me and we literally went through the whole piece on the telephone mm-hmm. and he said, you know, this bar, you need to go into three and you need to watch out because the horns are going to be late. So look, mm-hmm. I mean, it was that kind of, you know, yeah. the whole piece, he just told me everything. This is what you need to look out for. This is what you need to do. Um, and again, that kind of, um, cause of Claudio in a way, he probably wouldn't even know if he had been in three <laughs> or in one in that bar. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but that's just two very, very different personalities. Because I didn't go to, uh, to music college or conservatory because I didn't have um, you know when I look at the people uh, who study in, in Vienna or in Weimar or whatever the conducting students I mean they have they have hours and hours of, of real technical conducting lessons every week and of course that's what I mean that's the thing I, I never did have but then there came a time and I'm trying to remember when it was probably more eight years ago ten years ago than five now um, when I said I said to myself, I actually do want to have some conducting lessons. You know, looking back, again, you make up stories to explain something. But it was kind of along the lines of you see this, you see the greatest sportsmen who have, you know, you watch Tiger Woods practicing and hitting a golf ball 350 yards down the middle of the fairway and all the people watching him practice screaming with delight and some little old man shaking his head and pointing to a one millimeter of his elbow which isn't in the right place you know yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm making it up but you know, it's if, true. If, it's if, true. if tiger woods and, and Federer and all these people um need somebody who really understands their job to stand on the outside look at what they're doing and and talk to them about it um why are we not doing the same and it's completely normal everybody you know all the great singers they spend their entire careers having teachers because they need somebody who's not inside their head um, to listen to what they're doing and, and work with them on it. And yet there is a thing that conductors don't. I mean, I've been conducting now for, for what, nearly, nearly 30 years. Mm. Um, I've taught conducting. I've worked um, with an enormous number of orchestras, some of the greatest in the world. I've done it, you know, most of the days of the year for, as I say, for, for nearly three decades. Um, and still, I've, I've just got more and more questions <laughs> about how it works and about what it is. Mm. And it's a very difficult thing to define. But one of the things it is, is um, a physical discipline. 
There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, and some of the greatest conductors, some of the people we admire most in history, you look at their conductor and you think, okay, I can't explain at all physically how that works. And that doesn't fit into any of the kind of um, understanding we have about what a conducting technique is. And we just have to accept that something's um, kind of beyond our comprehension. Okay, well, we try to understand it. Um, but it is a physical discipline. And, and if you're a good conductor, if you have, what, for better or worse, what we call charisma, I mean, if you're the kind of person that when you stand there, your movements have an influence on the way people play, then you need to be careful that your movements represent what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> and Simon, Simon paid me a nice compliment when, or, or, but again, another perfect rattleism. <laughs> when I was in Tanglewood and he was teaching, he said, um, he stopped me, he stopped me conducting. And he said in front of everybody, he said, Daniel's problem is that because he's a good conductor, everything that he does with his body influences the way the musicians are playing. The problem is that he's not doing with his body at all what it is he wants to communicate. <laughs> so we need to figure that out. Um, and, but I mean, I think the first, so the first stage to being a conductor is that your, your movements do need to have an influence. Then we can try and <laughs> make those movements more helpful. Um, but so I thought I'd been, I kind of taught myself to conduct by watching other people doing it and by starting at a very young age to conduct and having pretty good ears so that I could hear, is this, does this sound like what I want? And um, what can I do to change that? So, you know, trial and error kind of way of learning to conduct. And Simon Rattle, who um, is one of those people that, um, I mean, the, every word he says to you, you know, kind of burns into your memory and has mm. an impact. Um, he always said, you know, he would say to me or he would say to people in front of me, you know, Daniel has an incredible physical gift, right? And so I just kind of said, okay, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got an incredible physical gift, right? And then you find myself, find myself at kind of 35 years old. And I think, hang on, my ideas about music develop, develop and develop. And my frustration at not being able to get all of that without talking and talking and talking and, and, and hours and hours and hours, um, it's, you know, that frustration gets greater and greater hang on maybe i don't have a great physical <laughs> gift or maybe maybe i need to spend as much time now working on that as i've spent working on just the things that i'm thinking about um and i also kind of thought maybe it'll be really really interesting to see if i can um if i can you know this thing that i've been doing for nearly 30 years maybe i can just really try and do it better um and i called um, someone I'd met through Simon, who was um, professor of conducting in Vienna, so, uh, a man called Mark Stringer. And I asked him, could you possibly find some time just to come and, and sit with me and watch me in rehearsal and just tell me what's going on? Because mm -hmm. I'm just finding, I realize now that I'm not physically uh, living up to what it is that I'm, I'm imagining. He said, sure, we'll do that. And it became, a, it became a big thing with us because I realized I'd found someone who had, for me, and it may not be for everybody, but for me, an incredible ability to look physically at what's going on and to explain what's working and what isn't working. Um, I found that I also found someone who understood, who kind of, sort of got me. He understood what it was I was trying to do. Very often we would debate about music 
Um, and most of the time I would end up agreeing with him, not with me. Um, but he understood what I was trying to do. And, and for someone to be a good teacher on the technical side, certainly for a conductor, you need them to be sympathetic to your musical goals. And he was able to do all of this in a way that I could really feel like almost on a kind of daily basis, the, the results. Mm. And so there was a really weird period I went through when I was, um, you know, conducting really some of the most important orchestras in the world where you think, is this a place to be experimenting? But he would be with me and he would say to me in a break, you know, I think that this isn't working here because, and we talk about something with the elbow or something with an upbeat or something with, you know, the, the, the place where I began the upbeat and the place where I finished the downbeat, these kind of things. Um, or he'd make me aware of a discrepancy between what I was asking for and what I was showing. And we'd finish the break and I would go back out to one of these incredible orchestras and I would do it differently and immediately mm. see that it changed something. And that, that kind of um, process is unbelievably rewarding and mm. it's kind of addictive. Mm. You think if you, can, if you can see results that quickly um, and it has that kind of impact, then why would you not want to do it all the time? And mm. So I spent quite a few years, really, with a lot of weeks per year with him giving me as hard a time as possible. We, we, take, we take longer breaks now between the sessions because, um, because you know, a lot of the things we identified, a lot of the things we worked on, um, we've made huge progress. Mm. Um, and it's important. I mean, there was probably a phase when I was working with him where orchestras could see me calculating what I was doing. You see, we don't have, the, uh, this is weird, I'm not, I don't play golf, nor do I particularly follow golf, but the second time I mention it in this interview, but if a golfer needs to go and um, uh, rework their swing, which I guess happens with, um, are you a golfer? Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, was. I think it's, uh, yeah. it's something, it's something that happens, right? Even with great golfers that you hear about stories where they've gone away and they kind of rebuilt their swing. But what they do is they stop playing competition. They go away and work on something and, and then they come back when they're ready. It's yeah. really weird for a conductor if you want to, um, if you want to work on something technical because you can't just go home and do it. You've got no. to kind of try and do it, um, whilst you're still working. And I'm sure there was a kind of period where, where orchestras could see, okay, um, he seems to be thinking, he, we, we can see the calculation about how he's using his body physically. And that must've been kind of weird. Um, and so it's important, it's important to do the hard work and then get away from that and make it your own again. Yeah. Um, but as I said, it's been incredibly rewarding and, and it's not something I would ever want to stop as a process because there will always be, there'll always be things. And they'll always, you know, if you can find someone who's smart enough to help you figure it out. And if, and if you can find someone who will give you the keys or give you the map or whatever it is to, to become better at something, that, I mean, that's the, it sounds banal, but I mean, that's the greatest gift someone can give you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I want to add a, a, a thing on the end of there in the fact that, you know, nobody, as you said, looks at uh, Andy Murray who has Ivan Lendl in his corner and helps him win his three major tournaments at tennis mm. and think it weird. Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks it's weird that Ronnie O'Sullivan, possibly the greatest genius snooker player the world's ever seen, has Steve Peters, a psychologist, in his corner. Nobody thinks that's weird. Mm. But as a conductor, yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of conductors would say, how brave, 35 years old, well-set international career, and then you want to look back in on yourself. But it obviously... For you, it's been 
a sort of trans trans yeah transformative sort of period and i'd say yeah. i say well done and I, I think you know it's the sort of thing that more conductors should do and rather than just you know it's the old phrase you keep banging your head against a brick wall why are you expecting it to, to not bleed you know um yeah <laughs> it, so it's wonderful also the other thing i was going to say is that uh, i had somebody ask me on twitter whether you i could ask a question to somebody about communicating and then also getting your your points across without actually talking to an orchestra and i think what you've yeah. just done is perfectly encapsulate that in the fact that you know you're thinking about your body but, and how to get your musical thoughts across and not just stopping yeah. and talking I mean, you know no but I, I mean but that isn't it's an important point because i mean uh, um, with all the love and respect and when someone begins a sentence like that you know <laughs> what's coming next <laughs> um, i was a I, I was a student at Tanglewood back in the 1990s. Mm. So it's a long, a long time ago. Um, and, uh, but I did have the feeling um, that we were kind of being trained. How can you get in and out um, of a week with an orchestra without anyone noticing you've even been there? <laughs> yeah, um, just, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, no, there was some wonderful there were some incredible people there and I, and I learned some incredible things and there were things that I should have learned that I was too arrogant to learn and I regret that. Um, but I mean, there was, a, there is this kind of school of thought that, um, that, and you do find it in some places, the minute a conductor even says something to an orchestra or asks something to an orchestra, um, that's kind of insulting and it means he doesn't, doesn't know how to conduct. Mm. Um, Peter Thomas, who you, you know much better than I do. Peter Thomas, when he was leader of the CBSO, back in the time when I assisted Simon, he said to me during a rehearsal, um, don't be afraid to talk to us. He said, that's how we get to know you. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a, um, a beautifully reassuring and beautifully put um, comment. Uh, Nicolas Arnoncourt, who is um, another one of those conductors where, you know, the musical results um, disprove kind of everything I'm saying about conducting technique <laughs> because there's someone who at the very least one could say had a, um, an idiosyncratic physical way of conducting an orchestra but my god you know mm. the rest of us can dream of achieving musical results like that yeah absolutely. Um, and he said something very very beautiful he said I can show an orchestra a diminuendo with my hands but I can't show them why um, and so yeah, I'm I'm yeah. fascinated by the the technical side and the physical side, and I appreciate the importance of it much more now than I did before. At the same time, I don't think that a conductor should treat an orchestra as a as an instrument to be played. I think that's insulting. I don't know. I mean, you you were an orchestra musician for a long time, but I think a conductor you want to have the physical capacity to to um, control an orchestra with your body with, without saying things. Some things have to be said. Yes, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. And you want to involve an orchestra in what's going on as well. You don't just want to manipulate them like puppets. I, I think that's weird. You, to be afraid ever to talk about what you're thinking, what you're imagining, means that you're shutting the musicians out of the process and you're just manipulating them. And I, I find that wrong. Um, no, but, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think you, there has yeah. to be a perfect... There's no such thing as a perfect balance. But there has to be a good mix between being able to show things without saying anything but also that as you said there are times when only an explanation will work be it a technical explanation or a metaphorical explanation but there has to be a time and it, as you said it's it's the way of getting your personality across 
because it's the way we all communicate is through speech you don't we don't, don't all communicate through sign language um, through mine yeah yeah and, so. and i think that uh, and I, it shouldn't be seen as a it automatically seen as a sign of weakness no. um uh, and again and, and i think the balance will always be different there are orchestras or there are groups or there are weeks yeah, because we're all different from one mm. moment to another but there are, there are there are times as a conductor where more talking is required than is necessary and there are times when you just need to understand this isn't the moment i need to keep my mouth shut and do it a different way and of course in the end we all want to have all of those kind of weapons in our armory and you and you pick the right knife whatever it is you're you know I'm, I'm going from golf to cooking there but you know what i mean you, no, no, you no. want to find the right yeah. the right tool for the moment and the more tools you have the, the more chance you have. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, Daniel Harding and I continue talking about his early experiences as a professional conductor, what conducting orchestras in London and Paris is like, and I find out how flying became such a big part of his life. Until then, bye-bye.